I honestly felt that home was a dream that was in the past and that I would never get back there. Less than three weeks after he graduated from high school, Lou Covelli enlisted in the Marines. That was 1963. Lou was 17. Two years later, Lou was on a ship bound for Southeast Asia. He was among the very first U.S. combat troops sent to Vietnam. Just weeks after their arrival, Lou found himself involved in Operation Starlight, the first major U.S. offensive of the Vietnam War. Sergeant Lou Covelli, who volunteered for just about everything, didn't figure he would make it home. But he did. And yet his return was met by a level of anger and disdain that rocked him to his core. He hung up his uniform, never to wear it again. Over half a century later, when invited to make an honor flight Chicago trip to Washington, D.C., he declined. He considered it a phony gesture. But after some persuasion, gentle yet persistent, he agreed to go. That decision gave him a day to long remember. You're 17 years old, just graduated high school, and you make a decision, you're gonna to go to the military, you're gonna to go to the Marines. What prompted you to do that? Well, in being raised in Chicago in the area I was and the uh, family background I was, it was always, you lived for God, country, and family, and that was your values, and that's what you, uh, based your whole life on. So I felt by God, country, and family that I was going to give to my country. So and I wanted to be in the military and I wanted to join, and I don't mean to offend us by anybody, but I wanted to join the best that I thought there was, being a Marine. Did you know at that point in time that there may be an occasion as a Marine that you would, would be sent to Vietnam. Was that part of your equation in getting into the Marines? Well, by the time I went in, there was no Vietnam, but yes, the equation was I wanted to go into combat because I knew that's what I was going in the Marines for. And if there is was a situation, I wanted to be there and I wanted to represent my service as well as my country. So you get to boot camp, and the DIs, as they typically do, they bust you down and rebuild you. And Good. so Lou Covelli takes all kinds of grief when he gets into the Marine Corps, right? That is correct. And uh, from the day I stepped in a in Marine Corps uh, recruit depot in San Diego, they started. And that's, they started, they tore you down completely, and they built you back up. built you back up in a way, in a fashion, that you felt that anything they dished out to you, you could take. But was there any point in time when you were in boot camp and you said, what in the heck am I doing here? Did you doubt yourself at any point in time? About the first hour I was there, yes. <laughs> That's when I felt I made a mistake. Yeah. But again, through it all, they, they, they know their, their ways and means of doing things. They didn't have, you didn't have time to really feel sorry for yourself. You just did what they told you to do. 
So when is your unit told that it's time to ship out to Vietnam? And you went to Vietnam by boat. So uh, we, we need to point out that you're among the first units to go to Vietnam. Yeah. We, were, we were being readied to go to Vietnam. It, it might have been in February of, of 1965. We were working at gathering our equipment, our supplies, and pre-planning our way of getting there. And, and we were going by ship, so that was... Uh, <laughs> that was quite a preparation because we had to get our tanks aboard ships. We had to uh, gain access to our ships in San Diego. So we left. It was in... Uh, it was in May of 1965 is when we That's left. early on, right? Yes. Right. And you're in a tank unit, so you know when you get there. Do, do you have any notion of what you're about to face when you're going to be in country? Not at all. We had no idea what we were fa going to face. or I never even heard of Vietnam. And how were you briefed on that? Were you told, here's what you're going to be looking at, fellas? Not really. I mean, we were told this is where you're going. You're going to Chile, Vietnam, but we had no idea what we were facing. All right. As a, as a member of a tank unit, what are your responsibilities? When you get there, what do you think you're going to be doing? When we, when we did arrive, or prior to arriving, we were told that there was an air base in July and that being support supporting unit of the 7th Marine Regiment, it was going to be our job to protect this airfield. It was a make-fast airfield. So that's your responsibility. With, with the tanks, you're going to be patrolling around the airport with the tanks? Well, we're going to be staged around the airport with okay. the infantry in between forming a perimeter. Well, when you're there and you're setting up for that responsibility, are you encountering any resistance? Not at first. Uh, <laughs> after we were there a short time, then we started obtaining resistance. The uh, Viet Cong were trying to infiltrate our lines in order to get to the air base to actually uh, blow up the planes. So how did, they, how, how did that show itself? Were they trying to sabotage things and getting in with explosives? And That is correct. Okay. They would try to infiltrate our lines, go in, set their charges or blow the planes up, and then leave. Did that happen? Did they have any success? It did. It happened... Uh, on one particular occasion, they breached our lines, they got in, and they blew up uh, two of our, I think they were F-85s at the time, our planes out there. So they managed to get in and do some damage. That is correct. Right. right. As, a, as a member of a tank unit, you deal in Vietnam with the monsoon season, which means a lot of rain, which means a lot of muddy traction and an inability to operate your tanks. So that put you in a position of having to be boots on the ground. You weren't able to run your tanks when it was raining like that. Many times during the monsoon season, we were uh, used as infantry. We would supplement the 7th Marine Regiment. We would go down on patrols. We would uh, be on the front lines protecting uh, our bases. So again, we did what we had to do, and every Marine's considered a uh, basic rifleman. Mm -hmm. And uh, Covelli is the guy who volunteers to do everything, right? That's you. You volunteered, and they just your commanding officers just realized that Covelli's going to volunteer. Well, yes, I felt that uh, that's what I wanted to do. I felt I was there for that reason. 
to give to my country, and I, I did. I volunteered for everything I, I could possibly volunteer for. And in a lot of cases, that probably wasn't the right thing to do <laughs> or the smart thing to do, but it ended up, uh, I ended up okay. So most of the time, given the weather situation there, were you infantry? Were you on patrol, uh, search and destroy missions, uh, reconnaissance missions, and not in the tank? I would say it was probably in a three-month period when the monsoon season uh, is there, we were probably mostly infantry. And uh, other than that, you know, we, when it was when there was no rain, then we were we were in our tanks. But yes, we did go on seek and patrol uh, uh, missions, seek and destroy. We went on recon missions. Uh, we encountered enemy numerous times on, on patrols, uh, ambushes, etc. What happened on those occasions? What what happened when you would go into a village? And we were talking earlier about how a lot of residents in the village would befriend you during the course of the day, but you came to realize that you couldn't trust them. Well, our feelings were that during the day, the villagers would uh, they'd mander rice paddies or. We'd be going through the villages and they'd be smiling and waving at us. But once we got in the villages themselves, we found that they were harboring uh, Viet Cong weapons and, and we knew Viet Cong military were in that village. But of course, we couldn't prove it until, I mean, you can't, you can't assume something. You just roll with the flow. When you first arrived, was it your inclination to trust the people who were nice and accommodating to you and then you realize that they couldn't be trusted or did you know right away that this is a bad situation well we felt that it wasn't wasn't a good situation i mean uh you 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 try to look at people in a in a positive fashion until they they show that they're different i mean when we were on the front lines as infantry we would there would be children that uh young kids that would be coming from station to station or uh, position uh, to position, and they would be asking for food and stuff like that. And then we'd find out that they went back, and all they were doing is they were plotting and, and uh, marking our positions. They were mapping you. Yes, exactly, in order for the uh, enemy at night to mortar those particular positions. Once we found that out, we, did, we didn't trust anybody. And there was an occasion you told me earlier where you had to train your, your rifle on a bunch of kids who were approaching you, and you had to tell them to back off. You got to the point where you just, like I say, the only person you could trust was the guy standing next to you, you know, in your uniform. Uh, anything prior to that, you you didn't trust. And there was there was about four, four to six, ten kids that were walking towards me in particular I was with a couple other guys but I leveled my rifle and I, I told them to back off because uh, fortunately enough I didn't have to do anything they turned around and they they scattered but uh, that's the type of situation you're in you know you fear you fear for your safety to a, to the point where you aren't going to take any chances were you involved in in a number of firefights yes there was, uh, uh, we were, 
numerous times on patrols uh, we would encounter the enemy or we would be ambushed. And uh, that's when that's when you react strictly on, in my opinion, by uh, by instinct. I mean, that's, that's what your training's for, for those particular situations. Because once it starts, you don't have time to think or plan. The only thing you can do is react. And, you know, when there's grenades going off around you, explosions happening, bullets riveting the ground around you, your buddy's being wounded, or you're or you feeling something uh, warm and hot, you just... Uh, you just do what you got to do. Yes, there was many times, and those are the times you like to forget. Well, they stay with you. Yes. You were wounded. Well, I had a – it wasn't a serious wound. It was a, a, a piece of shrap metal hit my arm and burned my arm. Well, you're Purple Heart, right? Yeah. Yes. But you say that with some reluctance because it wasn't – Well, I don't uh, – I don't – I don't like talking about them things. I, I I don't feel I did anything special. I was just at the maybe the right place at the wrong time. Yeah, you know, and it, and it just happened. I uh, when you're when you're in combat, it's it's not an individual effort. It's a unit effort, a group effort. So, but you were there for thirteen months, and and during that time, during your your full hitch there. What was your thinking about the progress that was being made by by us in our mission Vietnam? When we first uh, when we first got there, I think it was a month or two months later, we were in our first offensive uh, uh, operation, Starlight. And at that particular time, we didn't know what was expected of us. We just did what we felt we had to do, and we did it. And when it was all said and done. We were told that, uh, the Marines were told that we weren't welcome in Vietnam because we were too aggressive. Because in a situation where you're newly in a combat situation, you feel that anything that moves is the enemy and that's what you're going to uh, concentrate on. And who delivers the message to you that the Marines are no longer welcome? Well, that came down through the... uh, through the ranks, uh, I, I, from what I was told, what I understood, is the government of uh, the Vietnam government said that we don't care who stays here, but we want the Marines out because uh, they're just not the the right force to be here. They're too aggressive. So, how are you and your fellow Marines taking this? Well, we took it like a like a slap in the face because we felt we were doing right. And then later on, as the months passed, the, the government came down with the uh, directives that we we shouldn't fire upon anybody unless we're fired on. And it became very political at that time. Well, how does a, how does a soldier react to that? Don't fire unless you're fired upon. You've got to wait for the other side to be the aggressor. You had some discussions with your fellow Marines about this, didn't you? Most definitely. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, I and I give you an example. We were on the front lines. There was uh, three of us in a foxhole, right on the front lines. And this officer came up. It was just before the sun went down, and he says, "Who's seen your man here?" And I says, "I am." And he says, uh, "Okay." He said, "What are you going to do if you hear something in front of you down the valley?" I says, "I'm going to fire." And he says, "No, you're not." 
He says, you're going to crawl down there. He says, and you're going to find out if it's the, if it's the enemy before you, before you fire on anything. And I said, yes, sir. And the officer turned around and walked away, and I looked at my two comrades in the uh, foxhole, and I said, we're firing. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, what did you really think about it? <laughs> right. So that didn't go over real well, that order. And No, uh, and I, I really mean this sincerely. If, if our government, and I, I think anybody that was in Vietnam in the early stages, if our government would have left us alone and let us fought, fight the war to, or the conflict, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. refer to it, we would have been out of there in six months. If they would have turned the American troops loose, we would, the war wouldn't have lasted. That didn't happen. No, it did not. Was there ever, not that there would be in a military operation, but was there ever an explanation from your commanding officers as to the daily goal? What are we trying to achieve on this day? What progress, what, what's our assignment today, and what's the long-term goal here? Was that ever explained to the grunts? No, you were, if you were, if you were back at base, you protected the base. If you were going on patrols, of course, you knew what kind of a patrols you were going on. But it was not uh, set in stone, or, or you weren't told that we're going to overtake this position, we're going to overtake this position. It, it just wasn't that way. You just, you lived from moment to moment. And you live from moment to moment with some measure of fear, fear of the unknown. And you, you told me earlier that you, you didn't think you were going to make it home. No, from after, after you're there a short time, uh, you get complacent. You, get, uh, you may not wear your flak jacket. You just you don't think you're going to make it home. So you're saying to yourself, more or less, what's the use? If it happens, it happens. If it don't, it don't. I honestly felt that home was a dream that was in the past and that I would never get back there. And that's the way I felt until they told me I was coming home. Did you feel that you were going to be a, a casualty, of a combat casualty, and, that's, and you wouldn't make it because of that reason? Yes. During the time that the politicization of a military action takes place. And you're in, for whatever reason, legitimate or not, you're given an instruction not to fire unless you're fired upon. And you made a decision to tell your mates, well, we're gonna shoot anyway. Does this, does this begin to disenchant you, to, to, to suggest to you that, what in the hell are we doing here? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly, because you don't believe from the past conflicts and wars that we had, it was never fought in the way that Vietnam was fought. Vietnam was jungle warfare. World War One, World War Two, and even Korea, you had front lines. You knew your enemy was forward of that line. In Vietnam, you didn't have that. Your enemy could be standing next to you during the day, patting you on the back, and then at night, he's, he's the Viet Cong and he's coming after you. You didn't know who your enemy was. And even though this is, your service in Vietnam is mid-60s, it's fairly early. Tet has not happened, that didn't happen until 68. A lot of the major conflicts are gonna be down the road. And you don't know, at this point, the reaction of the American public back home. It's beginning to turn. There's this feeling back home uh, that, what are we doing? 
just kind of like you're feeling in the field of combat. You don't know anything about that at this point. We had no idea of uh, the attitude and the protests and everything else that was going on back in the States. Had absolutely no, no information on that at all. We thought we were being supported by our country. And when I talk about country, I'm talking about our citizens. And those were the people that are protesting. So no, we didn't, we didn't know that. I didn't know that until I came home, until I landed on, on American soil. I'm gonna to get to that in a minute. But during your service over there, every day is a little bit different and every day is the same. But you, um, you know that during the, as you approach the end of your tour, you, you kind of have a sense of your calendar, right? You know it's gonna be pretty soon I'm gonna go home. Yeah, but you don't. I, you I didn't, personally didn't think about. Okay, you didn't. You, you didn't. That I didn't dwell on it. You didn't dwell on it. But at some point, the commanding officer comes up to you and says, "Cavelli, uh, you're going home." And he says, "And would he give you a week's notice?" Yes. What happens when you get a week's notice? You're going home. Well, at that time, everything becomes a reality, and then you're you're kind of like slapped in the face that there is a home and you might be going back to it. And now all your fears escalate. Now you don't want to be out there on patrols and you don't want to be putting yourself in harm's way. But they don't think about it that way. I mean, the military does what the military does. And even though they tell you that you got a week uh, before you rotate back, they don't pull you back and put you in a in a rest home. You're out. You're still out on the front lines. But you didn't think you were going to get home. You feared that the worst was going to happen. So now you're going home, and home is going to be a real concept again. So that's kind of tough to take. Yes, it is. It's going to be an objective to get there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're. So what did you do in your final week? <laughs> you avoided all patrols. I worried. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so the day rolls around, and you get to go home, and you fly back, and you're on the flight. And tell me what happens. Well, when I boarded the plane, uh, we had a couple stewardesses that were on the plane, and we were still all in our combat utilities or fatigues, whatever you want to call them, greens. So I, uh, I got by a window, and I just laid my head against the window, and I, I felt the fastest way to get home was to go to sleep. And I slept. Of course, believe me, I was tired because I hadn't slept in 13 months. Mm -hmm. But anyhow, uh, the stewardess came on, on, the, uh, on the air on a microphone, and she says, if, if you look outside the portholes, it was at night when we, when we arrived, you'll see the coastline of California. And when I seen that, that was home. Place I never thought I'd see again. And there it was. And I can't tell you the feeling of being home. Another reality then strikes you when you are home, but you're told that uh, 
you're not going to be received in a welcoming fashion. When we landed at El, El Toro, uh, there was an officer that got a, that uh, entered the stage in front of us after we went through customs. And he told us, if you have, I know, he says, you probably don't, but if you have any civilian clothes, I would suggest you wear them because service people are being harassed at airports, bus depots, train stations. And at that particular time, when he said that, it was like a like a knife piercing my heart because I, I just didn't understand. I, I couldn't understand what he was saying. I had served 13 months for my country. I had put my life on a line. I've seen other guys put their lives on a line. I see my buddies, my friends, my acquaintances die for their country. Uh, we shouldn't wear our uniforms. And it was, it was a reality because I did go to the uh, Los Angeles airport on my waiting my flight. And there were people that walked by and, and they sneered at us and they, they, they called us names. And I know every Vietnam veteran remembers the, the name calling of baby killers. And uh, some even looked at us and glared at us and then spit on the floor. I shouldn't say us, I should say me, but I know this happened to other service people too, and it destroyed me. And I, after that, I, I, I really never wore my uniform. I never wanted to wear my uniform again. I was ashamed of my country. Did it cause you to question your decision to serve? I'm sorry, it, it did not. I. I was, no, it you, did not. Okay, you, you still firmly believe that what you did was the right thing for Lou Covelli. I do, because that's, that's what my country wanted me to do. That's where they sent me. That's what they expected me to do when I was there. And through my country, I'm, I'm speaking, I mean, we take our, our orders from our officers, and they take their orders from their officers, and... Eventually, it goes to uh, the politicians. Well, you demonstrate in many ways now that you're very proud of your service. I mean, you, you Marine flag and Marine outfits and that. You proudly wear those things. But for a long time, you didn't. You disassociated yourself with your service because of the reception you got when you came home. When did you get to a point when it was acceptable in your mind to go ahead and Put the uniform back on. Acknowledge that you served in Vietnam. I was always proud to serve in Vietnam, and I didn't really give a damn what the people in the United States thought, the protesters and that. I was proud to be a Marine, and I was proud to serve. I never put my uniform on, and to this day I never put my uniform on. I have it. <laughs> it's hanging in my closet, and I'm proud of it, and I'll show it to my grandchildren. And, and I will say this, a big turning point recently, I should say, within the last couple of years, has been my uh, attitude change when I went on the honor flight. Tell me about that. You went on the first honor flight for Chicago Honor Flight for Vietnam veterans. That is correct. When I was contacted about the honor flight, a uh, representative uh, 
from Crown Point, Indiana. Len Sherwinski. Yes, Len mm -hmm. Sherwinski. Uh, he contacted me, and he asked me if I would be interested in going on the honor flight, and I told him, no, I'm not. And after much discussion, of which he urged me to go. There was some arm twisting here, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I went. And no, first, before you ex describe your experience, why did you not want to go? Well, I felt that it, it was basically a facade, a fake, because when I came home, people were like, as, as I mentioned, people were protesting and people were calling us names. They didn't respect the fact that we were in a, in a combat zone. They didn't respect the fact that we were in the military. And now all of a sudden, at the flip of a coin, we're now, now going to be uh, uh, honored and, and respected. I just felt it was fake, and I told him that. What did he say? And he says, no. He says, I, I want you to go. He says, that's not the fact. He says, the fact is you need to go and participate. He says, and then you'll see and you'll appreciate what we're, what we're attempting to do. You are appreciated. So... So you went. I went. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll sum it up in, in this fashion. Uh, when, I, when I did go, we, uh, the people that were at uh, Midway Airport, they were volunteers, and they made sure that we, we got on our flight. They fed us. And then when we got to Virginia and Washington, well, we got to Virginia, we were assigned a, uh, a guardian who spends the day with you and makes sure that everything goes well. We're watched over by this guardian, and they escort us through all the different sites, uh, Vietnam War Memorial, the uh, uh, World War II Memorial, Korean War Memorial. And the one thing that uh, my guardian said, who was a 41-year-old female mother of three, her name was Alyssa. Bolzac. She looked at me when I was telling her how I felt about going on a trip. She looked at me in my straight eye to eye, and she says, you need to remember one thing. That was then, and this is now. In other words, forget about all the protesting and everything else. We're honoring you now. And that hit me, and it just, it's like it, it struck me, and it, it it made me realize that what she said it was 100% true. You need to forget about the negativity and you need to look at the positive side. And it was, a, it was one of the greatest days of my life. And I owe it to the people that volunteered, to my, my guardian. And when we came back to Chicago, there were lines of people uh, in fact, the Chicago Fire Department was out there, and there were representatives from the Navy in uniform. They escorted us down this uh, aisle, and there was people on both sides of the aisle. They were waving flags. They were cheering you on. And it was very emotional, especially. There was a lot of little kids, a lot of children that were there. And we got back, it was about 8 o'clock at night. And they were out there and they were 
waving at you, waving flags, and sticking out their hands to shake your hand. And above and beyond all, that was the most emotional part of the whole whole trip. That was uh, that was good. Did did it as an experience kind of reinforce the notion that you did the right thing for you when you decided to serve 50 years ago? Yes, I. Uh, it made me feel. It made me feel proud of my service after 50-something years, after 54 years, in fact. It gave me, I guess what I longed for is the recognition that we did serve our country and we did do our best. People can still and they will quarrel with the purpose of the mission to begin with, but there's a sense over time, over half a century, that the whole business of the unwelcome home that you received half a century ago has now changed. And I wonder what you think has brought that about. It's 180 degrees away from the experience you and many, many other men and women had when they returned from Vietnam. What changed that? What swung the pendulum? I believe a lot of it has to do with the veterans that came home. I think the veterans that came home extended themselves and explained themselves to their families, etc. And they're the ones that are basically cheering you on, so to speak, because they they've been there. They've done that. They know what they they know what you went through. And it's hard for somebody to understand the reality of war and, and, unless you've been there unless you've made the sacrifices. Because people, I could sit here all day and tell you what it's like to be there and the sacrifices that you make, but I don't know if a common, ordinary person could absorb it. Well, you experienced that when you came back. You got together with your buds, and, yes. and you describe yourself as a young, old man. They, they couldn't relate, or some of them couldn't relate to you at all because of what you had gone through. That's very true. As, as, you know, as we talked before, uh, when I came home, I rekindled my relationship with some guys that were, I went to high school with, and that weren't in the military. And it was uh, I was out of class. I, I, I didn't belong. I was, my thoughts and my I, I was I was an old young man at the time. My body was young, but my mind was old. That's a casualty of war. Yes, it is. When you came home, you joined the fire department, and so that's another way that you served your community. Um, your dad was a longtime firefighter, too, in Chicago, and you worked in Hammond. My father was a Chicago fireman for 32 years. I became a fireman, a firefighter in Indiana. It's a profession, and no different than uh, the police profession or nursing profession or te teaching profession. It's a profession you're committed to in order to help others. My whole life has been basically wanting to help people. And honestly and truly, we all think once in a while, I'm sure we do, ponder death. And if there was any way for me to go, I would want it to be helping somebody. 
you're an emotional guy, aren't you? You have the soft heart. Yes, I do. I love I love children and I love helping people. If I could help if I could help the world I would. I would just if I had one prayer to say, it would be to make make us one people under God. Well, you still got some time on this earth to push that along, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Lou, thanks. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. I appreciate the time and effort. Welcome home. Thank you. Sure. We hope you found today's Honor, Thank, Inspire episode to be moving and meaningful. If you did, please consider sharing this podcast and make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The impact Honor Flight Chicago has on the lives of our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors. To support our mission, to find our veteran application, to volunteer, or simply for more information, please visit us at honorflightchicago.org.